Our text is the, is the gospel lesson, which was just read from Matthew. Matthew chapter 2. Now the Old Testament repeatedly asserts that the Messiah, when He comes, will not simply restore Israel, but He will call the Gentiles. This goes all the way back to the call of Abraham. We saw it this morning in Isaiah chapter 60, the Old Testament reading. The wealth of the nations, uh, the kings and their people shall stream to the Messiah and to His kingdom. And in the Gospel text from Matthew 2, the famous story, rather strange story really, of the Magi, uh, we come to the very onset, the beginning, of the great messianic promises to the Gentiles. That's what the story's about from 10,000 feet. Often people get lost in the weeds on the Magi story. What about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? The way the story functions in Matthew's Gospel and in Scripture is this is the beginning of the fulfillment of all the great promises going back to Abraham that God is going to call Gentiles from the ends of the earth to His Son. That's what's happening in the text. These shadowy figures are the first Gentiles, the first ones, to come to the brightness of Christ's appearing. And Matthew particularly is so concerned to show the universal range of the Messiah's work that in Matthew's Gospel, there is no shepherds. He skips the shepherds because he's not interested, at least at the beginning, in Israel's response. These foreigners are not simply the first Gentiles. They're the first people, period, to come to Jesus in Matthew's account. So Matthew's very concerned that you get this. This is the beginning of what we heard about in Isaiah 60. The nations bringing their wealth to the brightness of the Messiah's appearing. So I want to make three points. <coughs> the Magi and the star. <coughs> Herod's response. And then the worship. The Magi and the star. Herod's response. And then the worship. So the first, first thing we want to talk about is the Magi and the star. Verse 1 says, after, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, during the time of King Herod, Wise men, or magi, from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, these men are, the best we can tell, a class of men descending from Babylonian or Persian priest astrologers. Persia and Babylon being east of Palestine. And they would study the stars uh, at a time when there were really no hard and fast distinctions between astronomy and astrology. And even in some cases, magic. Men like this would be considered to have some scientific credentials. They would be counselors, likely, to Eastern kings. They'd be on their staffs. And magi could also be rank sorcerers or magicians. The word is used in that sense in Acts chapter 13 of a false prophet named uh, Simon Bar-Jesus. This word magi is used of him. But here, there's no negative connotation. These are obviously noblemen 
And, uh, you know, among the many remarkable things here is the favor that these men and their methods are treated with. I mean, step back from this a second. The Old Testament clearly forbids sorcery and divination, whether by the stars or by any other method. By trying to use the stars to figure out what God is doing and what the future holds is not exactly a path you want to go down, even in the Old Testament, because the future lies in the sovereign will of God and not in the stars. So it's kind of odd to begin with. It's a story that would almost raise a kind of natural repugnance to a Jew. This is something I think we miss a lot. And so the, the, the fact that the story has strangers, now they're not involved in, in divination, but they're certainly dabbling in some kind of star interpretation. It's quite remarkable. In fact, it's a strong sign of the narrative's authenticity. No Jew would record this story if it weren't true. They wouldn't record it. It's just too close to the line of divination. You looked at a star and you, you, you conjured up some reason to follow the star and the star brought you to the Messiah? That might impress modern evangelicals who are always looking for signs, but it's not going to impress an ancient Jew who thinks divination is witchcraft. So in verse 2, after they arrive in Jerusalem, they say, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? King of the Jews is a phrase only and always used by Gentiles in Matthew's Gospel. Where Jesus is called the king of the Jews in Matthew's Gospel, it is always Gentiles who say it. So again, Matthew is setting up not only the idea that these are Gentiles, but he's setting up a confrontation. He calls Herod the king in verses 1 and 3. And he has the Magi identify Jesus as the king in verse 2. And so what we have here is a clash of kingdoms. A clash of kingdoms ready to break out. That's the second big thing that this story is about. You probably won't remember a lot of details about what the star could be and, and this. But if you remember, this is the, calling of, the beginning of the calling of the Gentiles. And that entails a clash of kingdoms you'll get the gist of the story. Now, so what's even stranger than the fact that some Persians, hundreds of miles from Israel, know about the birth of the Messianic king is the method they use to get this knowledge. And this is where all the fascination is. They say, we saw his star in the east and we, are, we have come to worship him. And so, what are we to make of this star? Well, I'll say a couple things. Uh, in the ancient world, it was held that the birth of great men would often be heralded by the stars. And probably these men believed something like that. And by the way, journeys based on astronomical phenomenon are not without precedent. This wouldn't be the first time some group of people said some star led me to this person's birth because of this event. Nero received such a visit from the East in 66 AD. And it's recorded by the Roman historian Suetonius. 
and they said, we followed the stars and they brought us to the great Nero. So people are always looking at the stars and their movements and, and, and divining portents out of that and traveling. It's not, that's not particularly unusual. This journey usually has three main ideas used to explain it. One is that it was a comet. Usually it's thought to be Halley's Comet. But comets cross the heavens too quickly and Halley's Comet appeared too early. It appeared about 12 BC. So it can't be Halley's Comet. The second idea is that it was some kind of supernova. And the third theory is that it's some sort of planetary conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter, which occurred, according to Kepler, about 7 BC. And that last theory, that third theory, is actually not without its adherence. And there are other theories. Um, what, I, what I would say is this. It, it, two things. One is, this star may be a natural phenomenon that by looking at astronomical data, you could, you could figure it out. But it may not be. It may be a one-time miraculous thing that God did with the star. And, and we're not invested in that one way or the other, right? We, it doesn't have to be a supernova or something that's recorded in Kepler's data. It could have been something God did once, or it could have been something that you could scientifically recreate. But the bigger point is this that whatever it was that the Lord did with this particular star, he did it so that through the knowledge these men had of the stars, the creation itself would lead them to Jesus Christ. That light would lead them to the light of the world. Now, if the heavenly guide is a little obscure, Theologically, there are some things happening here which are much, much clearer. We know, we know that God reveals himself to us by his word and in nature. Right? In this case, the creation leads them straight to Jesus. It's interesting. God does this in such a way as to meet these men right where they are with the skill set they have, with the geographical location they have, with the interests they have. There's a sense in which you see the infinite mercy of God to us Gentiles in this text. He's accommodating himself to these men and to their craft. But there's still another question, and it's this. How would they even know to watch the sky? I mean, how would they know to associate any kind of phenomenon with the birth of some king in some small Semitic tribe eight, six, seven, eight hundred miles to the east, uh, to the west of them? I mean, it's kind of odd, right? So here I want to re recall our minds to something very important. The Jews were exiled into what became Persia in the 6th century BC. And many, many of them never returned. Daniel was among the Jews who was exiled. And he had his own place among, he had his own triumphs over the magicians and the priests and the king's counselors in Babylon. And so it's quite possible 
perhaps even likely that these men came from the same sets of court officials that served Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. The same groups of people that Daniel and his three Hebrew friends were enlisted in. So the Jews were out over there. There was cross-pollination, you know. And so there was expectation, Jewish messianic expectation in Persia from the exile. And that probably fueled the excitement of the Magi. They may have known something of the Jewish scriptures and the coming of the Messiah. But I think we can be a little more specific even than that about what may have fired their imagination. And here there's a text which is almost certainly in the background for Matthew. And it may have provoked the Magi to look to the heavens. And it's in Numbers 24, and it's the prophecy of Balaam. Famous text. Balaam says this, I see him. Balaam's a Gentile, by the way. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him but not near a star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. So it's important to see here that Balaam is a Gentile. Gentile prophet. And he's, he's from the east. Balaam's from the other side of the Euphrates. And he sees a star rising to herald the Messiah. It's remarkable what the Spirit of God does. God's doing stuff where, where, where we think nothing is happening. This is before the Jews go into exile in Babylon. Before the Jews go into exile in Babylon, there's some prophet, some crazy guy over there on the other side of the Euphrates River prophesying that he sees the Messiah and he sees a star rising in Judah. In fact, Balaam also prophesies against a wicked pagan king just as this event takes place against the wicked Gentile Herod king and his wishes. That Balaam story is almost certainly echoing underneath Matthew's text here. And of course, in addition, we have texts like Isaiah 60, the Old Testament lesson. Nations are going to come to your light. Kings are going to come to the brightness of your rising. These texts were known in the East. They were known by Jews in, ex in exile, and apparently they were known by people like Balaam. And so, what I want, if we step back, you kind of have a startling use here of Scripture and nature, of text and science, to bring the first Gentiles to the Messiah. This is the fulfillment of all the great messianic promises to draw people from New Jersey and Connecticut and New York to the God of Israel through the light of Christ, starting with Persian astrologer priests. So that's the star in the Magi's arrival. The second thing we want to look at is Herod's reaction. Notice in verse 3, Matthew repeats the fact that he's currently king over Judah. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Right? The arrival has stirred up Herod, disturbed him, and the whole city. So it's texts, of course, again, like Isaiah 60, kings shall come, which led to the tradition in the church that these men were kings. Now notice, Matthew does not say that there were kings, and they were almost, as we've seen, certainly 
priests. And there's no way there was only three of them. Right? That tradition arises from the fact that they brought three gifts. This would be a fairly large entourage. Both because of the distance of the journey, probably 800 miles, and also because when they arrived, they stirred up the whole city and got the attention of Herod. The arrival of three people is not going to accomplish that. So, we three kings of Orient are, is wrong about the three and the kings. The Orient part is fine. But the, the three and the kings, no. Um, but be that as it may, they're here. They create an uproar. Herod is now nervous. By this time, Herod had ruled Judea brutally for over 30 years. He was, like a lot of rulers like this, he was known to be easily threatened by rivals. He killed his own wife. He killed three of his own sons. And the brutal murder of the infants that he's about to perpetrate in the next passage in Matthew, the slaughter of the innocents, it, it fits perfectly well with what we know of Herod's character. He's threatened. Like most wicked kings, he has no use for theology unless he's in a jam. Then he likes to quote scripture. And so he calls for the teachers of the law and the chief priests in verse 4. And he inquires there, where uh, is the Christ to be born? You know, it's interesting. Matthew is a very subtle writer. Notice, Herod doesn't say, where is the king of the Jews to be born? Why? Because king of the Jews is Herod's title. That's who I am. Everybody else says, king of the Jews, king of the Jews, king of the Jews, king of the Jews. Herod says, where's the Christ to be born? I'm the king of the Jews. So he uses the word Christ. Of course, he knew the Christ was to be a king, and he knew the kingdom was a threat. Herod, Herod was half-Jewish. He was a half-Jewish Roman puppet. And he's not on very good terms with the Jewish people, so he'd be especially exposed politically to a king in the Jewish royal family Davidic line. So he assembles a council in verse 5 and 6, and they dutifully and correctly tell him in Bethlehem. That's where the Christ is to be born. And they cite the prophecy of, uh, of Micah, famous prophecy. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Not only a ruler, but a king and a shepherd. And also notice the Judean origin. The point is that Judah's the kingly tribe. Bethlehem's the city of David. The Christ is going to be the Davidic king. This is not a text which would comfort Herod. Right? He's already nervous, and they basically say, yeah, Bethlehem, it's going to be the Davidic king. And he fears this text, but he doesn't submit to it. He calls the wise men in verse 7 secretly, and he finds out exactly what time the star appeared. He would use this calculation for his sending out his death squads to kill all male children under two later in the chapter. 
And so he sends the wise men off to Bethlehem. Now remember, they're at Jerusalem. Bethlehem's like five or six miles away. It's pretty close. He says, go and search carefully for the child. And when you found him, bring him back that I, you know, uh, come back to me, give me a report that I might come and worship him also. It's a civil religion of piety. Of course, the locals, you know, the local people, they would know of Herod's hypocrisy. They would know that this is pure nonsense. But these foreigners from Persia, they have no idea. They don't know that Herod's a psychopath, that he's a brutal tyrant. They just say, oh, whatever, fine, we'll, we'll go look for the child, we'll come back and tell you. But this is the, 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 the common modus operandi of tyrants. They mask their treachery as humility. Right? They cover up their murderous intentions with piety. Go and look for the child. And when you find the child, come back and let me know that I might also worship. That's Herod's response, and we know how it ends. It, ha it ends with him slaughtering all children under two in Bethlehem and its environs. An event also, by the way, prophesied by Jeremiah. The third point, then, is the worship. So verse 9, they leave the king, and this strange star which had taken them this far now leads them to the immediate area where the child is. So they come, basically, to the child's abode. I want to note one other thing important by its absence. None, none of the chief priests and the scribes goes with them. You know, you can focus on Herod, and he, is a, he's a, he should be focused on. He's a wicked madman. But the chief priests and the scribes get out the scriptures. They find the prophecy from Micah. They tell Herod. They've got the wise men in town. Everything's in uproar. The wise men go five miles away to Bethlehem, and the chief priests and the scribes, uh, they don't seem to care. They know that Christ is to be born in Bethlehem. They know that the city's in an uproar. But what? I, they need to clean the garage, I guess. I guess they're fixing their lawns that day. It's astounding. Meanwhile, these pagans have come hundreds of miles at their own expense, bearing the danger right, and the burden of the journey, carrying expensive gifts, and all the great theologians of Israel are like, ah, we're, go down and tell us what you find. This, the text is an indictment of the religious leadership of Israel. It's very much something that will come out later in Matthew's Gospel. Remember in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus announces these famous seven woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe, 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 woe. It starts here, subtly, underneath the surface of the text. They're missing. Matthew certainly wants us to see this, because in chapter 12, he's going to record Jesus telling us that the Queen of the South, the Queen of the South, the Queen of Sheba, who made a similar journey to see Solomon, Jesus says, shall rise up and condemn this generation for something greater than Solomon is here. Right? The queen of Sheba came hundreds of miles to see Solomon. And now the greater Solomon is here and your chief priests and scribes and Pharisees can't go five miles. You greet it with a yawn. And so the wise men trek on 
There's not three of them, remember. Uh, and in verse 10 says they saw, I mean, there could be three. It's unlikely, though. Uh, and in verse 10 says they saw the star. And when they saw it, they were overjoyed. It's really joy over the birth of Christ among the Persians and complete disinterest among the Jews, even at the beginning of the life of the incarnate Word of God. And in verse 11, they entered the house, the text says. Now, Jesus is not in the manger here. He and his family have a house. And this scene takes place maybe somewhere up to two years after his birth. They entered the house and they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and they worshipped him. And so, the great prophetic vision begins its fulfillment at one humble house in Bethlehem. Some strangers and a baby. This is where the light breaks out to the nations. And this is where the worship of all the tribes of the earth begins. And so the, the whole text here is, to, in a sense, to shock us into the wonder of Gentiles, far off, without God, strangers to the covenant, granted revelation and light in the Messiah. There are not too many Christians at this point. Not too many at all. But you know what? A whole pile of them are Persian. It's a strange star, and it's a strange calculus. It's a strange little house church. Finally, a word about the gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, which they offer. There's a great deal of speculation about these gifts and their symbolism. Most of it's overwrought, I think. The point really is simple. The prophets said that the kings would come and bring gifts. And, and the, the point of the gifts is simply that the recipient is royalty. Right? They're costly gifts because the recipient is royalty. That the wealth of the nations will flow into the church and enrich it, just as Israel plundered the wealth of Egypt. That whole process begins here. And do you know where it ends? It ends with the nations bringing their glory into the New Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21. What ends in Revelation 21 begins here. Finally, these men are warned in a dream, which is their language, of course, dreams and stars, not to return to Herod. And they return to their country by another route. I want to make two quick applications. Two quick applications. The first might seem rather mundane, but I, I want to commend to you the church's wisdom in the lectionary, in the system of weekly readings that we follow, as you know, we don't pick the readings out. They're, they're, they come from a standard, long tradition of the church which links Old Testament, New Testament, and Gospel lessons. And uh, the three readings today show the wisdom of this in a beautiful way because they cohere remarkably. Isaiah 60 is the promise. Nations and kings will come to this wealth. Come and bring this, their wealth to, to the light of the Messiah. Matthew 2, our text, is the fulfillment, the beginning of the fulfillment. And Ephesians 3, the New Testament reading, is Paul's commentary on that, on the great mystery that we Gentiles are 
co-heirs with the people of God in Christ. And so uh, it's important for you to see these three readings connected together, and you'll often be able to find that throughout the year if you pay attention to the links between the readings. They're especially obvious today. Secondly, though, um, we're not likely to respond to, uh, like Herod does, to, to an event like this, right? But we may very well find ourselves like the scribes and the chief priests. Right? We can have all our Old Testament prophetic scriptures to hand and then not run out to meet Jesus Christ who often appears in very strange garb and with very weird company. Right? In a strange ethnic band of people that are not like us. So scripture, you notice this, the chief priests and the scribes, they knew the scripture, but it was no use to them because they didn't receive it with joy and find Jesus in it and offer him their time and their talents and their gifts. The Persian astrologer priest Christians have found the pearl of great price and they were willing to risk everything. This is another point that's often missed in the story. They left home for years to make this journey. And they poured out their hard-earned substance on the king. And as such, they stand as witnesses to us, don't they? To us Gentiles who follow in their train. That we're to give ourselves, body and soul, to Jesus, the King of the Jews, and the light of the Gentiles. Amen.